welcome to St. Louis in Tune. And thank you for joining us for fresh perspectives on issues and events with experts, community leaders, and everyday people who are driving change and making an impact that shapes our society and world. The show is co-hosted by Arnold Stricker and Mark Langston. So today we're going to be talking to Tom Casey. He's the executive director of Criminal Justice Ministry. Tom was appointed executive director in the summer of last year. He holds a bachelor's degree in philosophy from Loyola University in Chicago, an MBA with a concentration in nonprofit management from Boston University. He was previously president of operation for Boys Hope Girls Hope Network headquarters in St. Louis. And the CJM, the Criminal Justice Ministry, for those of you who are not familiar with it, which is one reason we're having it on, they've served individuals, families, and communities impacted by the criminal justice system. They offer services to incarcerated individuals, providing reentry programs for those returning to the St. Louis area. And last fiscal year, they impacted over 23,000 individuals inside area institutions and throughout the St. Louis community. Tom, welcome to St. Louis in Tune. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Wow, you've got a great connection there. You must your mouth must be right up to the microphone of your phone. <laughs> <laughs> and we appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> I'm using a voice over internet, so I'm glad you can hear me. Oh, oh really? that's even better. Yeah. That's even better. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about your background. I mentioned that you've got a uh, bachelor's in philosophy and you've got an MBA in yeah. nonprofit management. What was uh, your rationale from for that as you uh, got out of high school, and then how does that impacting what you're doing right now? Sure, no, that's uh, you're, you're sending me back a few years. So, as as one of my high school teachers said when I when I declared I was going to do a philosophy major, he said, "You'll think beautiful thoughts. You'll probably put your broom the rest of your life, but you'll at least have beautiful thoughts." I, I did the philosophy degree. It just it was of all the different things I tested. I went to Loyola, and they have you know, the the core curriculum where you you have to do a certain amount of classes across the full uh, uh, range of things they offer. And so I did my required philosophy classes. I enjoyed them. And not being particularly drawn to anything else, I stuck with that. And uh, when I graduated, found that the careers in philosophy were a little bit limited. But I, I went into a volunteer program, year-long volunteer program, after finishing college. So Boys Hope Girls Hope at that time had just started a program. It was pre-AmeriCorps days. It's AmeriCorps now where the, they encourage folks to, to engage in a year of service, and you get some benefits for that. Well, we were doing that. It was more like the Jesuit Volunteer Corps and other programs that existed. And uh, I spent about 18 months to volunteer with them and then uh, pivoted to become an employee and ran a summer camp they used to own up in Canada and assisted uh, Father Sheridan, the founder of the organization, uh, with uh, sort of administrative work, et cetera. And uh, after being with them about five years, realized that uh, I really had a passion and enjoyed doing this kind of service work, uh, the nonprofit work, uh, but lacked some of the skills that might be uh, needed to uh, really be effective and, and, and be able to make a difference. And that was where I made the decision to go back to, to business school and specifically, though, to focus on a, a concentration for nonprofit management. And so I went out to Boston for a couple of years to do that, served a couple of years in the Peace Corps after completing that, and then returned to Boys Hope Girls Hope, actually. Hadn't planned to do that, but came back to them around 2000, spent about 20 years just going through different different leadership positions. And as you had mentioned, was most recently the vice president for operations, so a lot of the back office administrative pieces. Last year, made the decision to to leave them. Largely, I was a, partly wanting to be more engaged with the local community, but also wanting to be more engaged and work with folks at the margin. I was feeling called to that, and that's what led my search to find the opportunity with Criminal Justice Ministry, which is based here in St. Louis, uh, serves a very marginalized population, folks who have been impacted by the justice system, and was called to do that work. And it's, it's been an interesting year with COVID. 
Yeah, no, no doubt. And I've passed by your location many times and never knew you were there until I looked you up and was like, holy smokes, I go by that very frequently. Right. And wanted to, I was really not aware of your organization. And I'm, I'm trying to recall how I, and I, I don't mean this in a bad way, stumbled upon your organization. Right. But as I was looking, I was like, wow, if I don't know about this, not that I'm the all-knowledgeable, all-knowing one, but I like for people to have an understanding of the nonprofits that are working within our community and really especially working with those, like you said, who are on on the marginalized ends. Oh, yeah. The, The CJM, describe the history of that. Give people a little foundational background of exactly what the criminal justice ministry had, where they came from and, and where they're going. Sure. And I appreciate that. And I, I think we're like many nonprofits, we don't have a lot of money and time to invest in the marketing piece that so we hope to get the word out to the folks who need our services. And I appreciate an opportunity like this to, to spread the word for folks who might both need our services, but also be interested in getting involved as volunteers or supporters of the work we do. So our history goes back to the 1970s, the diocese, our diocese, Catholic Archdiocese of St. Louis, at that time did not have a formal ministry to those who were in jails or prisons. And there was a lot of discussion at that time around forming something. And my understanding of history is between leadership of the diocese and other folks, they ultimately ended up starting a, a ministry, the criminal justice ministry, as a program of the Society of St. Vincent de Paul here. So they brought it in. And at, and at that time, it was really largely focused on the in-prison ministry. If you think of the, the Catholics, our, our call to I was in prison and you visited me. But at the very basic beginning, it was about that idea of a ministry of presence to those who are incarcerated to let them know they're not forgotten, right. not forgotten, to make sort of Christ's love, God's presence real, real to them by going in and visiting them and seeing them within the prison. It grew over, over, over many years into many other programs. One of the things I realized is it was one thing to be in and serving people and providing that connection when they were inside the institutions. But then going beyond just the ministry side of it, doing more programming, doing some educational work with them, but then also looking at the challenges they faced when they left the institution. And that so many people would go and the recidivism rate of folks being rearrested, reincarcerated is very high. Mm. And so you have this sort of revolving door. People would be in the prisons, they'd go out and they'd end up coming back. And CJM began to look at expanding their services to those on the outside and uh, began to deal with some of the barriers they faced in order in, in, in their ability to reintegrate with society. At the start, it was just providing, meeting their basic needs. So we're providing food, we're providing clothing, we're providing assistance with getting transportation by getting the bus passes. For those trying to get a job, often not the types of jobs they're getting might require a uniform, a work boot, things like that. And so we're helping them get those kinds of things. For many of them coming out, especially those coming out from longer term incarceration, they don't have identification. And the idea of being able to apply for a job or be able to apply for benefits or any of that, to do that without identification is very challenging. And so one of the services we still do today is to help people obtain a birth certificate and get the paperwork they need in order to get an identification so that therefore that you take away that barrier to them being able to sign a lead, being able to fill out a job application, et cetera. So those services continued for many years and, and they just try to immediate, immediate need people because a large number of people coming out of incarceration wind up homeless. And so they face all the same challenges as anybody else uh, who, who is in that situation of being housing insecure. And so just helping deal with some of that, the challenges they have. Eventually, in the early 2000s, they decided to start their own housing program, a reentry housing program, to really try to help the most uh, marginalized folks who had the greatest challenges finding an apartment or finding employment, to set them up in, in a safe place to live 
and then allow them the opportunity to focus on what they need to do in order to become uh, independent and reintegrated with society. When you think about it, if you come out, if you don't have a safe place to live, if you're uh, having to live in a shelter, et cetera, it becomes very hard to focus on employment, becomes very hard to focus on the mental health healing, et cetera, all of that. Then 2002 or three, I think is when they officially started, they started what we call our uh, Relief to Rent program. And basically what we do is we have different groups that will target one of the, the groups we've worked with from the beginning are long-term incarcerated uh, men, guys who have served 15, 20 years or so. This includes folks who have been convicted of things like murder, sex crimes, et cetera. So those who have served long, long terms, they face a lot of barriers. So a lot of landlords don't want to rent to folks who have that kind of a criminal history. A lot of employers would be uh, reluctant to employ them. And what CJM do, they let's focus on that population. Let's provide them an apartment. So we have scattered apartments across uh, the city and we set them up to live in the apartment. We provide a case manager who provides 24-7 support so they can reach out and contact them. They help them with all the steps of basically relearning how to live in society. So if you think someone who's been away 20 years, a phone is something very different today than it was 20 years ago. And little things like that, how to stop, how to maintain an apartment, et cetera, all these skills that they think they wouldn't have been doing the last 20 years based on living in an institution. So we help them with a lot of that basic stuff. We also connect them with the services for mental health support. I instance among formerly incarcerated of mental health issues, substance abuse issues, things like that. So we try to provide them the support to make sure that they're getting the care they need so those things don't become something that derails them. We, we try to help them with uh, developing the skills they need and, and the search for employment. And so over the 12 months that they're in our program, eventually they start to take responsibility for their expenses. So we pay the rent at the start, but then they begin to have to, to pay the rent and, and to pick up the utilities and their other expenses. We help them up at the very beginning. Our cake managers might take them to the grocery store to help them do their shopping, things like that. But over time, they become independent. They're supposed to, to show their ability to take on those things themselves. And so the idea is that after 12 months, they're able to take over their apartment. They're able to live independently in the community. And rather than being a risk of reengaging in criminal behavior or substance abuse or things like that, and rather than being someone who might going back into an institution, there's someone who's going to be a contributing member of our community and, and be able to thrive out in the community to some degree. Do do counselors, do you have counselors that visit them after that first year that kind of stay in touch with them and make sure they're staying yeah. on the right track? Because that's what you're describing to me, just as a person that hasn't been in jail, but it's tough to do just in a normal day to day. Right. And I can't imagine you're going to give me 12 months to get it right. And I'm just hoping that I have that support ongoing, even after that. Sure. So one thing is not everybody completes in 12 months. So some of them, if they're not ready, that we do extend. So that's one thing. But the others, yes, they do remain in contact. Uh, many of them are, are in touch with our folks. Um, it's not a formalized follow-up, et cetera. It's one of the things I think, uh, as you point out, it may be something that's a little more uh, focused attention on. But there is a lot of informal contact. They, the relationships they develop with their case managers over that 12 months are pretty close. And so they, they are reaching out. They are in touch with us. Our, we do have a licensed counselor on our staff. And so she will continue to see people after they formally exit our, our housing program as well. You seem to have a really organized continuum of services that are em- meeting immediate needs and those that are meeting long-term needs that you see down the road. And I know that there are always obstacles that come up along the way. And you mentioned some of those, like people will not want to hire individuals who've been incarcerated rent to them, et cetera, like that. What are some of those other obstacles to help people who are listening get a better handle on some of the things that you, 
as an organization, but also those that have been incarcerated face on a daily basis. Sure. And I, I should have brought on one of our, we have many of the, the of our former alums clients work for us and can better articulate the challenges they faced. What, what I think has become very clear to me is people talk about the collateral sort of damages of having been incarcerated. Mm-hmm. And so the way that you're, you complete your sentence, right. but then you're really mm-hmm. not free at that point. There's a stigma attached to it. And there are depending upon what you were convicted of. And right. so we work with sex offenders or one of the, the few organizations, I believe, that really focuses on them right. because they really have very specific things that are lifelong. So you're, you have to register and that impacts a lot of things about your life, where you can live, et cetera, all, all of that. There's a lot of restrictions. And so that, that population has very specific challenges. There are others, felony convictions, et cetera. There are a lot of different things that impact them, both by statute. So for example, there's a movement now to try and open up an ability for folks with a conviction to be able to work in institutions that sell lottery tickets because right now they can't. So when you think about that, all those jobs in grocery stores, right. convenience stores, gas stations, they wouldn't be eligible to be employed there just because of the, the, the conviction they have in their past. And so that's something where well, I know there's been a movement to legislation introduced to change that. But there's also just employers, when you think of the, they'll do a background check and they would be reluctant to hire someone based on a past conviction. And that's a challenge anytime they seek employment. Another place specifically with housing is there's been a boon uh, over the last several years of these background check organizations that, you know, help landlords to screen out people, They're screening out for any kind of conviction. And so right off the bat, our folks, when they apply for housing, that, that background check can come back and they're going to say, no, you got a conviction. We don't think we want to rent to you. You're a risk, et cetera. So those are things that are constant. There are other challenges, again, depending upon the, the type of conviction they have in terms of whether or not they have full access to the different social safety net kind of benefits that the government provides. They may not be allowed to take advantage of some of those. They may, and some of them coming out, they may not be able to, to live with their family if their family is receiving those benefits. So when you think of the normal ways people seek support when they're in trouble, you might go couch surf at a relative's house. They may not be able to do that without putting their family at risk of losing their benefits. So there, there's those types of things that happen. And then those are some of the major ones, like housing, employment, and access to benefits are some of the, the big ones. Healthcare is another piece where, you know, depending upon the type of incarceration they've had, so whether it's a jail or a prison, there are different quality and types of support they'll receive around mental, physical, and dental care and things like that. Mm. And so often access to the support they need coming out of prison are, are a challenge for them. They may have several, what do they refer to them as comorbidities, so they may have conditions that require, like a diabetes and things like that, that require a lot of support, et cetera. And they, they may not have had that while they're incarcerated, and then access to that may be a challenge when they come out. How involved are you with other criminal justice system groups, i.e. like maybe the circuit attorney's office or maybe the SLMPD and and the local legislators to advocate for some changes in some of our statutes? How involved are you guys with that? Sure. So historically, there's been different levels of engagement and involvement. Um, my being fairly new and with COVID going on, it's made it difficult to get out and meet with a lot of people. But uh, we have had historical connections. Uh, we, we participate in different groupings of organizations that do similar work. We participate in, I don't know if you're familiar with Empower Missouri. They have several coalitions that, that really focus on the advocacy side of looking at the legislation. And so we participate in their Mark Sentencing Coalition, which sort of advocates like that law I was talking about in terms of employment restrictions. We work closely with the Department of Corrections because we the guys we're serving, the folks who are coming into our program, they typically are under supervision of uh, probation and parole. 
And so we work closely with them on the referral process for folks coming into our housing program. We're working closely with the parole officers to create those housing plans with folks prior to their release. We do work closely both with the local offices of parole and probation, but also the uh, U.S. Uh, federal one. We've historically worked with them as well. We don't deal with as many uh, folks coming out of federal institutions. Most of our housing clients today come from Missouri Department of Corrections, though we have had some. We also work closely with the VA. There's a lot of veterans who have been justice involved. And so the VA is actually a big supporter partner of ours because we will provide a, a reentry housing program for veterans. And again, that's a close relationship because they make the referral to us. And then those, those veterans are receiving services from them and then the housing and support from us as well. So we collaborate on the plans and support for them. Matter of fact, you have a Vets for Pets program. Explain what that is. I found that a little intriguing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, a couple of years ago, one of the things they were exploring were opportunities to provide access to employment, job training, things like that. And so it just started as a small program for us right now. There's a couple of guys involved. It's, they put in a couple of half days a week. They bake, they make treats, and then they sell them at the local farmer's market. I know they're regularly at the Tower Grove the farmer's market. Hmm. That's one of the ones that still is open now. There are other festivals and fairs and things that they've attended in the past but are not, not doing currently. There's a product we have called iBone, which goes back several years to understand what started for another charity, but then they, that we got the right to use it. And so they're the producers of the iBone street. They do, we got a sewing machine, professional grade, et cetera. And so they're able to do scarves and other things for the dog, but it provides an opportunity for them to get a little pocket money. The two guys who are most active in it right now really are, this is additional, uh, little extra funding for them. Our hope, I think, in the future is to look at whether or not we can expand that a little bit and engage more of our folks in terms of opportunities for some experience in a work environment as a chance to help them prepare to to reenter the the workforce. Now, I wanted to give a little bit of information about that, but first I want to give the website, cjmstlouis.org, cjmstlouis.org, and the Vets for Pets. Folks, this is great because all of these treats are made from all natural ingredients and they're sold in 2.2 ounce bags. That's about 14 treats. As Tom mentioned, there's scarves, there's bow ties, dog beds. They, these treats are in seven flavors. Here you go. Beef and bacon. I was reading these. I was like, this is making me hungry. Yes. I would actually like to try some of these myself. Oh, no. Beef and cranberry. I was hoping it wouldn't go there. Chicken and bacon. Oh, anything with bacon. Chicken and blueberry, fish, and then a mixed bag. And the eye bones he was talking about. I love this. They're beef flavored, squirrel shaped treats. Oh, Oh, good. A bag of 10 is $5. So if you want information about that, here's a number, folks, 314-583-6084. So, Tom, I, you mentioned the housing program, and we were having a conversation with Tom Casey, who is the executive director of the Criminal Justice Ministry. And, Tom, I know it's tough getting the word out to individuals, and I, I'm very appreciative that you uh, – are giving us some time to get the word out on our station. How? What are some other ways that you're getting that done? I know your budget's very limited to promoting the yeah. organization. What are no, you doing I, related to that? Sure. No, I appreciate an opportunity like this. And we take advantage of all these chances we get our, our staff, our folks who work here. Again, as I, I think I said earlier, many of them are folks who personally are, have been impacted by this. So they either have come through their alumni or, or they have family members impacted. So they will take advantage of any opportunity to come out and share the stories and talk about 
the importance of this work and the impact and, and the things as a society we need to pay attention to in terms of the way we approach policing and, and, and justice, right? Uh, so we love to be converted. We do, we talk to church groups. We talk to radio shows like this, et cetera. On our own end, we have a great opportunity. We have a VISTA member, uh, serving with us who's focused on communications. And so she's doing a good job of getting us active on, uh, social media. So we're posts on Facebook and, uh, those types of platforms. And we've got our website and we, we've got a mailing list folks can sign up for on our website and we send out, uh, uh newsletters every couple months to keep folks informed about what's going on and things like that. So. It, it's generally, it's a lot of grassroots. It's a lot of word of mouth. We have uh, the benefit of many volunteers who've been involved. So we, we uh, uh, rely on them also to be out spreading the word. Unfortunately, during my time here, uh, some of the things we would have done in the past, like having, uh, you know, uh, fundraising events, have not been happening in person. But we are. We've got a couple things coming up where we do things that are a little bit about educating the uh, community. Uh, we have an incarceration forum coming up on May 20th. And again, there's some information on our website about that. Well, we're going to focus on the impact of um, the COVID uh, pandemic on reentry. And so we got several guest speakers to, to come in and talk about that. But we open that up. We'll promote that. Again, it's out on our social media, things like that. Uh, an opportunity for folks who are interested in learning more about it to engage and hear more about our organization. And then we help, we'll have several uh, of the panelists will be partner partners from different organizations. So you'll hear about some of the other groups. So those are some of the ways. And then we participate in. Uh, groups like Arches has a, uh, an association for reentry uh, groups, and so we participate with that as well. So the website, folks, is cjmstlouis.org, cjmstlouis.org. And, Tom, I know that you had mentioned you work with those who had been incarcerated after they're out, either on probation or parole. Is there any attempt to work within uh, the systems, within the jails and prisons with your organization? Sure. Sure. And that's when you look at the numbers we touch, the, the bigger numbers have been trying to engage with those who are inside institutions. Our volunteers historically would go in across all the different, and our geography, if you will, has, has historically been the Archdiocese of St. Louis. So we do the, the jails, prison within, within the boundaries of the diocese. And right now, unfortunately, and really for the last year, we've really been very limited on our ability. So our volunteers are not able to go in and it's different rules for each of the different levels of institutions, Department of Corrections versus the city jail versus the county jail, et cetera. So all of our volunteers really right now have been essentially locked out because they're waiting to get to a point and Department of Corrections has a plan. They said once they reach, a, I believe it's a 75% vaccination rate across the inmates that they'll begin to allow volunteers to come back in. They've just begun to allow visitors to come back in mm. if the inmate is vaccinated. Mm. So that's just begun. But we go in as volunteers, as part of ministry programs, et cetera. We do a lot of different things. As I talked about, we, we have folks who go in and just do the basic thing. They go in and visit, and they haven't been able to do that this past year. But we also have programming we would do inside. So we have different classes we would teach. We do. There's a Kairos on the inside program that we've been affiliated with doing. So it's a retreat on the inside. So those things have not been able to happen. We also, one of our programs, we merged with another organization called Let's Start. They had focused on working with justice-involved women historically. And back in 2019, they combined with us. And one of the programs that they had run for years was this bringing children down to visit their mom at the Vandalia Correctional Institution. And they haven't been able to do that. So that, that hasn't happened since I think the last bus trip was last February. But that's another way where we've tried to connect, maintain a connection between those women and their children because it's so important both for the woman on the inside to have that support, that connection, but also for the children to maintain the relationship. And again, we haven't been able to do that in person. We've been exploring different ways that we can try and help support the connections by phone or even by web calls, things like that. 
with one institution here in St. Louis, we have the Transition Center, Transition Center St. Louis run by the Department of Corrections. They did, they have been allowing folks to come back in. They've done a good job of the safety measures, et cetera, to allow some of our volunteers who are comfortable to come back in. But the other thing they did was allow us to begin to deliver some of our services virtually. So we have a program we call Making It Work. It's volunteers who do a series with the guys where they're focusing on a lot of the employment skills, the soft skills, et cetera. Things like, how do you talk about your background when you're going in interviewing for a job? And they've been doing that virtually since December. So they're meeting with them online. Our volunteers log in from home and the transition center has it set up where they can get some of the guys together in a room and project it on a screen and they're able to have the class. Not quite the same as being in person. All of us are dealing with that, school children, et cetera. But it's given, they've been great about giving us an opportunity and they value the services because it's one of those things, again, when you think about someone trying to successfully come out and get back on their feet, having coaches, having folks who help them to be successful in that job search and retain a job, it's very important. And we were glad to be able to do that with them. We've not had as much luck on the technology side, except for being able to do replicate that in other institutions. But one of the ways we've continued to serve them. Other things have continued. We've had a pen pal program for years. Again, connecting folks on the inside with people on the outside to create some recognition of them, some human contact, if you will. That continued. We've done some other things. Like historically, we would go down and bring Christmas cookies down to a couple of the institutions at Christmas, and we'd go in and do a little Christmas party. This last year, we just brought the cookies and dropped them off. So we didn't have the party side of it, but we were able to deliver cookies and bring a little bit of that holiday cheer, if you will. And I was amazed by the number of cookies, the response in the community of people, and it's across different parishes and organizations. Many folks have done it for years and just have a, a history of bringing us dozens and dozens of cookies. Uh, so that that's one of those ways where, again, changed a little bit because of COVID, but we were still able to to bring it in and uh, certainly got great feedback from from some of the folks on the inside who one of the guys sent a note saying it's just the, the impact of knowing that I'm not forgotten and the impact of knowing that someone took the time to bake cookies and deliver them to me. But it's, just, it's a recognition of their humanity and to say that we know you've done something wrong. We know you're we know you're serving your punishment, but we still recognize you as having dignity and worth, et cetera, and show that act of act of compassion, if you will. That's that's um, a great comment. That's right. a great comment there. Yeah. So we're hopeful, again, it's been, again, one of our big historical things and, and, and one of the ways we've engaged so many members of the community, volunteers, is to be able to go in and, and have that presence to folks. And we're hoping that uh, as vaccinations are, are implemented across all the different institutions that we will be able to do more of that again. Right. But that's been, a, that's been a frustrating part for me because uh, having been here since July, I've really only been able to visit one institution. So I've mm-hmm. been down to the transition center. But uh, the other ones, it's just not been possible. And uh, it impacts us in a couple ways. It's not just the visiting and providing that sort of support to the folks inside. That's been an important part about helping in the, the preparation for coming out. Mm-hmm. So our volunteers are interacting with people on the inside, which is one of the ways that they learn about our work and the opportunity to come apply for our program. But then our staff typically would go in and be able to talk to folks in the months before we know they're supposed to come out, talk to them about our program and begin some of the planning and thinking about what it's going to look like to re-enter, okay, what that transition is going to look like. And that's been a difficult thing as well, not to be able to do that, both to talk to the the uh, the, the inmates, but also to be able to talk to the staff and make sure they're aware of us and know what our programs are and, and that they can be referring. So that's been a real disconnect this past year of, again, not being able to physically go in. Uh, all It all makes sense why we want to limit the folks because of the risk of COVID, but we are really, again, hopeful that as the, the vaccinations come out, that we'll be able to, to re-engage in that because we think it, it just contributes to more successful re-entry. 
Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Now, when people talk to you about the criminal justice ministry, like we are talking to you, I'm sure that there are some success stories that pop into your mind or that you've got in your data bank there. And I'm going to ask you to, if you wouldn't mind, sharing a success story that really had an impact on your heart. Sure. I have a very personal one. I think it's okay to talk about him because he, he talked to the press already. We have a, an alumni of our program who I did one of, one of my first hires here. And we just hired him on to help with our housing program. So again, with the housing program, we move people into a fully furnished department. And when I say fully furnished, we try to anticipate and take care of all their basic needs. So they don't have to, they come in, they're able to live there and they've got everything they need when they move in. So staging that, getting that ready, we have staff who that's their responsibility, get the furniture moved in, make sure we got a checklist of all the things that need to be in the apartment. And we've been pushing, we're trying to get a lot more volunteers to help with that and donors because that's easy gifts to help us with gently use things for apartments. Mm-hmm. But anyway, we brought him on just this past year, named Ronnie, and to begin helping us with that. He'd come through our program, he's graduated the program, and he'd been interviewed, he was on NPR and he'd say an article on him in the Post, et cetera. He's been a big advocate for folks like him being able to come back into society. And he, he talked about, we spoke earlier about some of the challenges, voting rights being one of those things. Can I, can I now fully participate as a citizen again? Right. But Ronnie talking about the, the, he did something as a young man. It was a terrible crime and he'd done his time for it. And he, I think he took great remorse for it and he turned his life around and wanted to give back. And he brings that energy and passion to his work of really wanting to make sure that we make apartments ready for folks and that we're setting them up and so that dedication to it. And he's very conscientious as an employee and you just see the impact he can make and the desire he has to do that. Is that, that so that's been his break for me, just a chance to be involved in hiring him. And here's someone who, again, many employers might just look at the background check and say, this is a risk we don't want to take. But for us, again, we try to, I think, give an example of what we're advocating for others, give people a chance that we're not going to judge him by the worst mistake he's made. We're not going to, we're not going to make him be defined by that. We're going to give him the opportunities here to, to show what he can be, to show that he's not just that act. That's how I stumbled on you guys. I read that article. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I was like, yep. Yep. who is CJM? And I looked, yeah. looked you guys up and yeah. was like, wow, why don't I know anything about you guys? And, and they've been around since the seventies. Is yeah, that 79. right? Yeah. yeah that's 79. Yeah. I, yeah. This is the first I've heard of you. So, so I was yeah. glad that we were able to make a connection and have you on the show. So lastly, what's the greatest need you guys have right now at the organization? Sure. So finances is always up there at the top, right? Everything we can do to help get the resources we need to be able to provide the services. So that's always a constant thing and it's on my mind all the time. And uh, you've already mentioned we're participating in Give SDL Day, which is sponsored by the Community Foundation. And we're really hoping folks will respond to that in a generous way, particularly since we haven't been able to have our typical fundraising events where we'd raise some of the unrestricted dollars. So we're hoping uh, to deal with that. Other things we need, certainly it'd be nice if the vaccinations could get done and we could get back to business as usual. But related to that would be uh, engaging folks who are willing to participate as volunteers. So we have lots of different opportunities for folks to, to participate, whether it's becoming a pen pal, whether it's helping us with setting up apartments, helping us move in, those types of things, or coming down to the office here and helping us with some administrative things now that we can hopefully have folks vaccinated who can safely come in. Uh, those are among our big needs. I think society-wise, we certainly pay attention to and hope that at the larger level, policy changes, et cetera, to make it remove some of those barriers to folks that we're working with to make it possible for them to 
have opportunities for employment and to have opportunities to find safe, secure housing. So folks, they are accepting donations and Give STL Day is May 6th, but donations are being accepted now and you can visit the GiveSTL.org forward slash CJM to find out how you can sponsor, get this Mark, a birth certificate, a work outfit or other services for clients. What, What a great deal. And if I have some gently used furniture or things like that, is there a place to donate that or? or? Yeah, we, we're going to make things for us. We will accept things. We've been a little with COVID, like a lot of places we've tried to limit some access, but we will take some stuff. We also partner with St. Vincent de Paul. Ah, okay. And there, and another group, Home Sweet Home, that, that help right. us. So they also take furnishings as well. Right. They're sometimes better equipped to collect it than we are. Gotcha. We've been very fortunate. We've got a group called the Malta Ministries. They've got a van and they'll help us pick stuff up so we can collect something mm-hmm. and uh, again we're typically one bedroom apartment and so just stuff that would be appropriate for a smaller apartment would be great for us okay tom very we appreciate very much you coming on the show today to talk about the criminal justice ministry here in st louis and maybe the work that you may, guys are doing maybe rodney should come on our show. is it rodney is that his name ronnie uh, ronnie ronnie i'm sorry Maybe Ronnie. We should get Ronnie on here sometime. Yeah. That would be great. Yeah. yeah, he's part of a group called Expo, which is they advocate, and so I'd encourage you to look at them as well. There's several groups out there that are really advocating for folks like Ronnie for their rights, et cetera, things like that. And yeah, it'd be great to bring out someone who's had the lived experience and could talk about their journey. Yeah, we've been talking to Tom Casey, Executive Director of the Criminal Justice Ministry. Tom, thank you very much for coming on St. Louis in Tune. Thank you both for the opportunity. That's all for this show, and thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can listen to additional shows at stlintune.com. That's stlintune.com. And please consider leaving a review on Apple or Podchaser or your preferred podcast platform, as your feedback helps us reach more listeners and continue to grow. Thanks to Bob Berthesell for our theme music and co-host Mark Langston. And we thank you for being a part of our community of curious minds. St. Louis in Tune is a production of Motif Media Group and the U.S. Radio Network. Remember to keep seeking, keep learning, walk worthy, and let your light shine. For St. Louis in Tune, I'm Arnold Stricker.